you have no control over what the markets are going to do. So simply because you're being more hyperactive with, with your trading and turning over your portfolio doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get better results. And in fact, the, the research shows usually you're going to do much worse. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. To lead off episode 16, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Ben Carlson, author of the book A Wealth of Common Sense and creator of the blog of the same name. Ben is Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management in New York, and in my opinion, he's one of the wisest commentators on the markets and the challenges that we face as investors. The subtitle of Ben's book is Why Simplicity Trumps Complexity in Any Investment Plan, and he does an excellent job of articulating how and why so many of us sabotage ourselves with short-term thinking and by failing to invest with a clear plan. Now, in addition to blogging regularly, Ben also writes for Bloomberg View, and he and his colleague Michael Batnick do a weekly podcast called Animal Spirits, which is a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And I'm very pleased to have on the podcast with us today, Ben Carlson, who joins us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, I'd like to start by asking you to talk a little bit about your role at uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management. You're the Director of Institutional Asset Management. So I thought I'd ask you to just share a little bit about what that entails, and then maybe reflect on the different challenges that are faced by institutional investors compared with individuals. So I work mainly with nonprofits and family office clients. I also do work on the individual side a little bit, but the nonprofit space has been my my focus for my career. So if you think about uh, endowments or foundations, uh, pension plans, and there are obviously some some differences between the way institutions and individuals invest, but um, in a lot of ways that they're similar. Any institution will have uh, you know a goal or a mission that they're trying to to invest their money for. And they, they may have some beneficiaries, so things may be a little different from, from who owns the assets. But um, the main differences, I think, between the way an institution invests and, and an individual invests is the, the fact that institutions are typically dealing with um, a group decision-making process. So they may have a board and an investment committee and, and benefactors and donors that they have to answer to. Um, and that decision-making process can be complicated. Uh, on the other hand, you know, again, they're really having to determine how to allocate their assets in the best way to, to sort of reach their goals. So in a lot of ways, the investing side of the equation um, really doesn't have to be that much different. So so really, we, we take the view that, you know, um, philosophy is universal, but strategy is personal. So we have a similar philosophy with all of our clients, to, you know, no matter what they are, whether they're a small individual, um, a, an alternate high net worth client, or a nonprofit. So we take a similar tact. It just kind of depends on what the personal circumstances are. You know, it's interesting. I used to uh, talk to individual investors and say that there was a lot that they could learn from institutional investors. Things like, you know, long-term focus, patience, uh, stress on asset allocation versus security selection and things like that. But uh, in your book, you talked a little bit about almost how it could work the other way around in that the one advantage, I guess, that individuals have over institutions is that they're not accountable to an investment committee. They don't have to necessarily benchmark their performance on you know quarterly bases and things like this. So it, it almost seems like the two groups could, could learn a little bit from each other. Yeah, unfortunately, 
the even though a lot of these nonprofits and endowment funds have what could be a perpetual time horizon, yeah, you're right. They they look at their their performance on a quarterly basis and are constantly shuffling around money managers and making changes. Um, and so they're making you know short term decisions with long term capital in a lot of ways. And so so I think one of the advantages individuals may have over institutions if they if they have the discipline and the patience to and the behavioral traits to to follow through is the, the ability to stick with the plan and not really worry about what other people around them are doing. And one of the reasons I think many institutions get in trouble is because they look at their peers to see what they're doing so often. And they, they're really measuring themselves against their peers instead of measuring themselves against their own personal goals. And that can really be, a, you know, a terrible way to manage money when you're looking on a relative basis instead of really just focusing on what your resources and needs are. Yeah, especially because your peers probably have no idea how to properly measure their investment returns, and you're only getting the success stories. I'm sure you're not hearing the whole picture. Exactly. I mean, it'd be like an individual trying to manage their portfolio to everyone on their block or all their coworkers or something, um, which would make no sense. But that's in a lot of ways is how many institutions do. They they look at to see what what other people are doing around them, and they and there's obviously room for best practices. But in a lot of ways, um, there's some copycatting going on when the these institutions aren't really able to assess, you know, whether they have the ability to actually pull off what some of the, the more successful institutional funds can do. Mm-hmm. Wanted to talk to you a little bit about a challenge that I'm sure you face, uh, we face it here too as well. And that is when you have an active role in the media and you're out there preaching a message, uh, and in this case, I'm talking about a message of simple approaches you know, not uh, making investment plans that are overly complex. But then when you scratch the surface of a lot of advisors who make that argument, you realize that they don't really practice what they preach. And the way they manage portfolios for their clients is quite different from the face that they put to the public. And I'm wondering if it's because that there is a challenge, there's a risk that clients will push back against simple approaches. And I don't know if this is something that you've encountered, but you know, the argument is, why would I pay somebody to just buy, hold, and rebalance a few ETFs when I can do that myself? So tell us a little bit about how you walk that line. Sure. And, and I see this, especially on the institutional side, where they almost assume that complex markets require complex solutions. And so a lot of the strategies that we employ are fairly simple and rules-based, and a lot of large institutions almost can't wrap their heads around them because they they, they think that that well, those those sort of strategies can work for someone else and for smaller investors, but there has to be this secret sauce that is only available to us larger investors that are more sophisticated, quote unquote, and and it just hasn't been the case um, in my experience. And so, uh, I think one of the challenges, like you said, is is understanding that doing nothing a lot of times is a decision, and whether that's right or wrong, and and taking a more long term approach is very difficult because you know investors have this illusion of control. That they think if you're trying to do something and you're taking action and you're implementing more tactics, that you must be, you know, more in control of your portfolio and therefore in control of the markets, which just isn't really the case because you know, you have no control over what the markets are going to do. So simply because you are being more hyperactive with with your trading and turning over your portfolio doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get better results. And in fact, the, the research shows usually you're going to do much worse. But it makes it feel like someone's behind the steering wheel. And I think that that offers people a sense of comfort, like that someone's actually doing something on their behalf. Um, so, so a lot of the stuff that, that we try to do to, to get over this hump 
which you're right, it is it is difficult to, with both individuals and institutions alike, is really set expectations up front and, and talk about, you know, what you we can and can't do for certain clients and prospects. You know, so we, we try to let people know exactly what we're going to do ahead of time, and then we go out and do that. And that way, there's, there's hopefully no misunderstanding of, of, you know, broken promises later on. And, and, you know, you guys told me you could do this, and now you're just doing this. So, um, so that's one of the things is it's really important to set the correct expectations up front for what you can and more importantly can't do for a client. Yeah, it's interesting that you made the analogy about someone being behind the steering wheel because I was thinking about this not so long ago in terms of, uh, you know, Google Maps or some other GPS system that you might have. And, you know, you, you're driving somewhere, you enter the destination into the app and it gives you the best route, but then you refresh it a couple of minutes later. Now it's giving you a little bit different route because of what's happening and you got to, you know, veer away, do a bit of a detour and you keep doing that. <laughs> or if you're the passenger in the car, the driver's asking you, can you keep checking? We're going to keep changing the direction. And I'm not sure that you really get anywhere any faster. And I'm pretty certain that when you do get there, you're a lot more stressed out than you were when you left. And I, I wonder if it compares, you know, to the way investors are always seem to be trying to react to what's happening to the markets from day to day, instead of just plugging in a plan and following a route. Yeah. And, and that's kind of my, you know, I, I probably fall uh, fall to this one at the, at the grocery store looking for the fastest lane and, and constantly yep. changing. And And I think... This is why we like to say that, you know, financial and investment planning is a process, not an event. And, you know, I think it's, it's fairly simple to put together a plan if, if you really, you know, want to sit down and understand what, what your current situation is. But the implementation of that plan is the really difficult part and, and really seeing it through and understanding, you know, when does it make sense to make a course correction and when does it make sense to, you know, be disciplined and stick to your plan and, and not make any changes. And, and most of the time, it is just, you know, stay the course, stick to the plan. But I think really implementing and, and going going from, you know, expectations to reality where the rubber meets the road is, is really difficult for a lot of people to understand, you know, how to handle these things. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about uh, a, a rules-based strategy that you, um, you know, that you'll recommend for both institutional and individual investors. Um, you've been pretty clear, I think, that you advocate, you know, low-cost, low-turnover, disciplined solutions, but you're not an ideological index investor necessarily. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, this active versus passive question and how investors can think about where to find their place on that continuum. Yeah, I think it really has been an argument that a lot of financial people focus on more than than individuals do, or maybe should. And I think that the lines between active and passive are really blurring because, I mean, if you look at the the turnover in something like the the SPY, which is the S and P 500 ETF, you know, the the biggest ETF out there, the the thing turns over like every 21 days. So it's not like people are buying and holding this this asset. It's it's, it's much more of a trading vehicle for a lot of people. So. So while that is a quote-unquote passive vehicle, people are trading it actively. So uh, I think that there, th- th- these lines are becoming blurred, and and I think that we're really moving towards more of a system where it's more system, you know, systematic rules-based approaches versus um, faith-based approaches. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing with where assets are going these days, where people want to know, you know, th- that they know exactly what's going to happen in their fund or their portfolio ahead of time you know, whether the results are good or bad, so that they at least know what they're getting. And with the old way of doing things, it was kind of this, trust me, I got this, uh, you know, put your finger in the air and, and I'll guess what's going to happen in the markets or, or with these companies. So, so, I, so I think that is really, you know, losing steam in the investment business. 
And so, so that's kind of the way that we think about active versus passive. It's more understanding, you know, what exactly you're getting and, you know, how systematized the process is and how much you can understand what exactly you're getting out of any certain fund or strategy. Now, in your book, uh, A Wealth of Common Sense, you share an anecdote that I really like and I think offers some great insight. You do describe how when you first read uh, Ben Graham's book, uh, The Intelligent Investor, and I'll just say here for listeners who may not know, Graham was the mentor of Warren Buffett. And you said that your initial reaction was to think, you know, hey, now I've got the tools to invest like Buffett. And it was only later that you realized this was a little bit like reading a book about Michael Jordan and concluding that now you understand how to play in the NBA. So tell us how you came around to that insight. And yeah, the the, the crazy thing about the markets is, you know, if you wanted to be like Michael Jordan and play in the NBA, you couldn't exactly just get on the court with him back in his heyday. But in the markets, you know, everyone is investing in the same exact financial markets and the same companies. Obviously, some people have more advantages than others and can get better deals. But in a lot of ways, the market is just this wide open playing field where everyone is on the same level and they can invest in the same companies and securities. And so I think it opens people up to trying to think that, you know, if they read a few books or understand a few quips here and there from their favorite investors, they can they can be just like them. Um, but it, it really, you know, once you start investing in the market, you really begin to understand just really how hard it is. And I think that's the thing that, that I've learned the most from investing over the years is every year that goes by, I realize there's more and more that I don't know. And I think the the best thing you can do as an investor is not really to try to emulate the the greatest investors because you know that, that that's very difficult and and it's it's such a small percentage of the population that can actually be one of these top tier investors. Um, but I think the best thing you can really do is just try to to avoid the negative and get rid of the the worst things and get rid of mistakes. And, and I think that's the the big thing I learned from a lot of these these best investors is that um, you know they're not perfect either and they make a lot of mistakes too. So I think if you can learn how to just you know avoid the pitfalls and have this sort of negative knowledge where you get rid of everything that doesn't work and whatever is left over is kind of the way that you can manage money. I think that that's actually more helpful for, for the majority of the population. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the biggest obstacles that people that get in people's way? Like what are the biggest mistakes people make that if they can just eliminate those, you know, maybe they're going to get 75, 80, 85% of the way there? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I, you know, dealing in the institutional space, there, there's more money and, and maybe some more experience. I think in that space, overconfidence is probably, you know, one of the biggest hurdles to to get over because a lot of the, again a lot of these these investors assume that they need to invest in the the best and brightest and they they feel that you you get what you pay for in the investment industry which as we know is is usually the opposite you get what you don't pay for as as uh, Jack Bogle has said so I think overconfidence is is, is probably the big, biggest hurdle for professional investors as far as in, individual investors go. I think that the hardest thing is really just sticking with one strategy and, and being comfortable and being okay with it and understanding that jumping in and out of every fad investment and making changes to your portfolio or your strategy um, is really the way to, to build wealth. And I think there's just so many people out there just don't really have an overarching philosophy or plan of attack, you know, in, in which to even build a portfolio in the first place. So, so they don't have that, that, you know, the big key principles that are driving their actions. And I think when you do that, when you have the philosophy, that's when it's easy to to really weed out a lot of the stuff that's not going to work for you. And that's not to say that it can't work for someone else, but I think understanding yourself and really understanding your own personality um, and, and basically your lesser self and what it takes to, to get over that is really a big thing for individuals. 
Yeah, there really seems to be a, a tendency for individual investors to always believe that there's something better out there. You know, I find that um, one of the reasons why I typically advocate just a plain vanilla cap-weighted strategy is that it's not that there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with some of the you know, smart beta funds or enhanced indexing or whatever you want to call them. The problem is there's so many of them to choose from and there will always be periods where some outperform and some underperform. And I find it very difficult knowing what I know about investors that they're going to stick with the ones during the years that they're not working. I think it's more likely they're going to jump to something else and then you're right back with the same problem you had before, which is no coherent long-term strategy. And that's, I think... It's kind of a double-edged sword for investors these days. I think it's probably never been better to be an individual investor in terms of the selection of funds and the low cost and the ease of access into the markets and and the amount of information out there. But the double-edged part of that is the fact that there's so many products available and there's always new products coming online and tempting investors to make changes. And so I think if you don't have a filter in place, to, to sort of guide your actions and decide, you know, what to avoid and what to pay attention to. It's really difficult. And I like to, to tell people, you know, index funds are nothing special. You know, it's just the fact that they're, they're kind of rules-based, they're low cost, they're tax efficient, um, you know, they don't have much turnover. And so you can create a similar strategy any way you want using those main commandments. It's just people have a hard time doing it. And the fact that an index fund, something broad-based will do that for you, you know, is one of the reasons that it's so hard for even professional investors to beat them because they just don't have those those simple rules in place and, and they don't keep their turnover low and they, they are kind of tax inefficient. So um, it's not like they're a big secret. It's just that it, the simplicity of them is is one of the, you know, the best parts of it. And just, it's just really hard to, to replicate for people. One of the best chapters in uh, in the book is called Market Myths and Market History. And um, you go through a number of common ideas that can kind of lead investors astray. And I wanted to ask you to reflect on one of those because it's something that you touched on again uh, in a piece that you just wrote for Bloomberg about lump sum versus dollar cost averaging. Um, and it's called the myth is new all-time highs in the stock market mean it's going to crash. And this is something that I'm hearing all the time too. I imagine you are as well. People who happen to have a large lump sum to invest are saying, I just can't bring myself to invest it now. Markets have been so good for the last five to seven years. We're overdue for a crash and I want to put my money in gradually. So can you talk a little bit about how investors can kind of work through that decision and when it might make sense to go all in at once and when it might make sense to do it gradually? Yeah, and, and I think it's it's interesting because I think a lot of investors are so scarred from the, the 2008-2009 crash um, that this this has become such a psychological event more than than an analysis on a spreadsheet for people because, th- again, they are just waiting to put their money in. And, and maybe a lot of people sold at the bottom and went to cash for a few years and really missed out on a lot of gains. So what they're telling themselves internally is, I'm just going to wait for that to happen again and I'll put it at the bottom again. But uh, the problem is, y- you know, holding on to, to a lot of cash becomes something of an addiction. And, and again, it's more psychological than anything because you're constantly waiting for another shoe to drop when markets are falling. So the way that, that I think about this idea of if you have a, a slug of cash you're sitting on, whether you just inherited it or you've been sitting on it for a while, is really just to, to think things through a regret minimization framework because that's really what investing is when it all boils down to it is, you know, what are you going to regret worse? You know, seeing further gains in the stock market or, or seeing and missing out on them or seeing a huge crash and being involved in them. 
in, and there's really no right or wrong answer because no one knows what's going to happen, but I think it, it really comes down to balance. And, and the best thing you can do, and, and we do this with clients, is, is really understand that, you know, having a plan in place ahead of time is the best course of action and just following it no matter what happens. And you can have some, some sort of if-then rules, but, you know, the, you can follow all the data you want, but if you, if you don't have the, the emotions to, to stick with a plan, it's really not going to matter. And in the, the, the stuff I wrote in my book about all-time highs was interesting because I think I, I wrote the book in, uh, it came out in 2015. I probably wrote it in 2014. The whole point of it was, you know, new all-time highs in the markets are, are fairly normal. I think it happens 5 to 7% of all trading days. And, and the hard part about that is eventually one of those all-time highs is going to be a short to intermediate term peak in the markets. Uh, you just never know when that's going to happen. And, and, but for investors trying to time something like that and assume that they're going to be able to get into the exact bottom and know exactly, you know, when that's going to be, that's just a really tough game to play. So, so I think if you have cash, you know, you know, you can, you can try either or, or you can try maybe a combination of the two, whatever, you know, psychologically allows you to, to stick with a plan and get that money invested. I think that's the best way to do it for each individual. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that even though the um, gradual approach uh, is likely to minimize regret, it's still not necessarily as easy as it sounds. I mean, I've certainly seen investors who have planned to invest in two or three tranches, and then after the first one goes in, they can't bring themselves to implement the second one. So, uh, it you know, it's it, there's there's no easy solution here. But uh, I would agree that you know it's not a market timing strategy. It's sometimes portrayed as that, but this is not about trying to maximize returns. It's about trying to minimize regret and about to, or a, a way of sort of getting you out of cash and back into a long-term plan. Yeah. And especially for all those people who've been in cash for so long, I think maybe it can be so psychologically challenging if you just put it all in at once. And so it, it will hopefully help you sleep a little better at night, diversifying across time and maybe market environment a little bit too. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, mistakes that people make, but I think there's at least some evidence that, you know, a growing number of people are beginning to understand the behavioral challenges of investing a little bit more completely. And maybe I'm being a bit optimistic, but it seems like the industry in many ways is slowly getting better at it too. So last question, I just wanted to ask you to reflect on, you know, the, the plight of the investor. You mentioned a minute ago that, you know, in many ways, it's never been a better time to be an investor. But what still needs to happen before things truly improve? I think for a lot of people, it really comes down to understanding their own financial situation. And, and unfortunately, that's kind of the harder part of it in a lot of ways. So I've written pieces in the past about the difference between investment management and financial planning. And so I think a lot of people think they need portfolio management help when they come to us as clients, but what they really need is financial advice. And so they want to know if they're saving enough and they want to know if they have enough to retire and they want to know if their distribution plan from their, their portfolio is, is going to work well. So I think a lot of people just, it's really more of a financial advice conundrum for a lot of people and they, they really need to know, are they going to be okay? And, and is the plan that they're on going to work for them, you know, regardless of what their portfolio strategy is? And obviously the portfolio is part of that. I think it's, it's, it's really difficult to ever offer anyone investment advice without understanding their financial situation. So, so that's the one area where I think, um, the financial services industry could, could use a lot of improvement. And I think if we actually saw a lot of people go from the investment side of the equation to the financial advice giving side of the equation, I think that would be a net positive for, um, for the population. Well, Ben, this is really great. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight with us today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Now it's time for another installment of 
bad investment advice. Where we dig deep to find the very worst financial tips, techniques, and strategies and urge you to ignore them. I recently came across an article on the website of BNN, the business news network, called Does Technical Analysis Really Work? Now, if this term is new to you, technical analysis involves studying stock market data with the goal of using this information to predict the future behavior of stock prices. Technicians, or chartists as they used to be called, use software to analyze trends in the price and trading volume of individual stocks and the market as a whole, and they try to identify patterns and indicators that suggest when it's time to buy and sell. The author of the BNN article says technical analysis is, quote, based on the assumption that most human activity is predictable and the past will likely be repeated. If the price of oil has risen on the eve of a full moon 75% of the time for the last decade, for example, chances are it will rise on the eve of the next full moon, close quote. Now, I think that last sentence is a joke, but I'm honestly not sure because the author also tells us that, quote, technical analysis works most of the time and it should have a place in your portfolio. Now, technical analysis is often touted as a strategy for market timing. As one software retailer put it, it can be used to, quote, preserve capital before markets tumble and take full advantage as they start to rebound, close quote. It's also been used as the basis for sector rotation, which involves shifting your investments from one industry to another based on economic cycles. So, for example, moving into defensive utility stocks before a recession and then into energy stocks after the recovery. It's really easy to poke fun at technical analysis because so much of the terminology is colorful, even bizarre. I mean, the patterns have whimsical names such as candlesticks and head and shoulders and cup and handle, as well as some more ominous ones like the death cross and my personal favorite, the vomiting camel. Now, I think that last one is a joke too, but with technical analysis, you really can never be sure. I mean, some of this stuff sounds like it's right out of the Da Vinci Code. Google Fibonacci retracement if you really want to get a taste of how nutty some of this stuff really is. And all of that made me think that technical analysis was maybe too easy of a target. But then I spoke with a friend who recently attended an investing expo in Toronto, and he told me how attendees just flocked to one of the exhibitors who was peddling this trading software that promised to tell you when to buy and sell. And even BMO InvestorLine and Questrade, the online brokerages, offer technical analysis tools for do-it-yourself investors. And it's not just directed at stock pickers. I mean, many of the advocates of this strategy suggest using ETFs to implement it. So it probably is worth taking the time to consider the dangers of investing this way, because it does seem that a lot of people take it seriously. Now, even if you believe there may be some value in analyzing data for clues about market trends, I think a little humility is in order here. You should ask yourself if you honestly believe that as an amateur investor, you will be able to identify and exploit the information you get from technical analysis. When these same data are available to professionals with PhDs in math and who have much more sophisticated software than the one that you bought at the money show. You know, you need to really consider whether you think you have the skill and the discipline to make trades in your portfolio that will prevent large losses while still participating in the big gains. And I don't mean making one or two good calls. I mean being right often enough that you'll beat the market over the long term. I mean, does anyone really believe it's that easy? If there were a small number of easy-to-follow rules, that would be one thing. But if you read a little bit about technical analysis, you'll soon learn that there's no coherent, consistent process for applying it to an actual portfolio. 
Those who advocate the strategy like to say that you need to be very experienced to recognize subtleties in the data, but that frankly sounds like an excuse people use when they can't articulate their value. As Burton Malkiel wrote in A Random Walk Down Wall Street, quote, Some of my best friends are chartists, and I've listened very carefully to their explanations, but I have yet to really understand them, close quote. A genuinely workable investment strategy, at least one that can be implemented by a do-it-yourselfer, can be clearly described in a few sentences. Longer explanations than that are likely just to be covering up BS. Now, of course, there will always be commentators on BNN and elsewhere that are eager to share their own technical analysis with you, though it will be usually too vague to act on. And that's not surprising when you think of it, because it makes no sense for a technician to share recommendations in the popular media. Technical analysis is, at its core, a contrarian strategy. One advisor who uses it compared retail investors like you and me to zombies in The Walking Dead, and he explained that he likes to, quote, trade opposite the dumb money. Yet he wrote this in a magazine, Canadian Money Saver, whose audience is retail investors. So if you had a contrarian strategy that worked reliably, why would you share it in a magazine read by the very people you were trying to exploit? Buy and sell signals become increasingly worthless the more people act on them, so you'd just be giving away your own secret sauce. Why not keep that strategy to yourself and use it to build your own wealth? Probably because, as the founder of Forbes magazine famously said, you make more money selling advice than following it. Now, you might counter, well, I don't personally have the skills to analyze all of that market data, but that's why I use software to do it for me. But again, ask yourself this. If you created software that could use publicly available data to make reliable profits, why not start a hedge fund and charge 2% plus performance fees to get access to it? Or at least take a large line of credit and leverage that advantage to make yourself wealthy. Why would you spend your Saturday afternoons at investment seminars standing in a booth and peddling it to amateur traders for $69 a month? The irony is the technical analysts might think you're the dumb money, but they're the ones who believe they can outsmart the market with their candlesticks and death crosses. If you agree institutional investors, such as pension funds and endowments, are the smart money, then take a closer look at how they invest. You can be pretty confident that these fund managers are not going to seminars and buying technical analysis software. On the contrary, the smart money focuses on broad diversification, low cost, and long-term discipline, all of which are pillars of traditional index investing. If you want to be part of the smart money, I encourage you to follow their lead. Now let's dig into the mailbag for another segment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from podcast listeners and blog readers. And once again, Amanda DL joins me with our latest question. Thanks, Dan. So this question comes from Brandon in Winnipeg, who wants to know if it's wise to include REITs or real estate investment trusts in his portfolio. I currently hold 10% REITs, and I'm wondering if I'm overweighted in real estate since broad market equity ETFs already include some REITs. However, I was under the impression that REITs often move in the opposite direction of equities, something like bonds, but with better returns and more volatility. Thanks for the question, Brandon. Before I answer it, let's quickly review what real estate investment trusts are. A REIT is a publicly traded company that owns or manages income-producing properties, such as office buildings, apartments, shopping malls, hotels, retirement homes, and so on. The rental income generated by these properties gets passed to the unit holders. So if you buy a REIT, you generally receive a steady stream of income, often in the neighborhood of 4% to 5%. 
There are several ETFs that hold a portfolio of Canadian REITs, and these are quite popular, especially among income-oriented investors. And when I first created the model portfolios on my blog several years ago, I included a 10% allocation to REITs. We used to recommend them for our clients here too, and many of them still have a small slice of this asset class in their portfolios. But in the last few years, we have moved away from that recommendation and we've simplified our approach. We no longer believe it's necessary to add a separate allocation for real estate. And this is even more true for do-it-yourself investors. Now, there are some good reasons to include REITs in a portfolio, and Brandon touched on one of them in his question when he said that they often behave differently from the broad equity market. I would not go so far as to say that they're similar to bonds because they don't offer nearly the same protection during a market downturn. I mean, in the 08-09 crisis, for example, REITs lost half their value, and they offered no diversification benefit at all. But it is true that a portfolio that includes, say, 10% REITs and 90% equities has historically been less volatile than a portfolio of 100% equities, with little or no reduction in returns. So it is fair to say that REITs can be a good diversifier in a balanced portfolio. Another argument for including an allocation to REITs is that real estate is underrepresented in traditional index funds, at least when you consider its importance in the economy. I mean, as everyone knows, real estate is an enormous asset class in countries like Canada, but very little of it is publicly traded, so its economic footprint isn't really reflected in stock market indexes. If you look at the S&P TSX composite, for example, which tracks the broad Canadian market, real estate makes up less than 3%. So when Brandon asks whether adding a separate 10% allocation to real estate is overweighting that sector, you could reasonably answer no. It might actually be compensating for the dramatic underweighting of this huge asset class in broad market index funds. So that's the theory, but as always, we need to consider the practical issues as well. The first problem is there just aren't that many REITs in Canada, and most of them are quite small. So the iShares, Vanguard, and BMO ETFs that cover REITs include just 17 to 20 holdings, and not a single one of these is part of the S&P TSX 60 index, which tracks the largest public companies in Canada. So if you put 10% of your portfolio in one of these ETFs, you will have some very big exposure to some very small companies. One of the key principles of index investing is that you should avoid single stock risk, but you're probably not doing that if your portfolio includes a lot of Canadian REITs. The next issue to consider is the additional cost. The fees on REIT ETFs in Canada are much higher than those of broad market ETFs. They range from about 0.39 to 0.71%, compared with as little as 0.06 for ETFs tracking the total market. Now, you could mitigate these two problems, lack of diversification and higher fees, by using ETFs that hold U.S. and international REITs. Vanguard, for example, offers ETFs on the U.S. exchanges that include hundreds of non-Canadian REITs for as little as 12 basis points. But this just creates additional hurdles because now you'll need to convert your loonies to U.S. dollars to buy them, and it will compound the next two problems. The first of these is tax inefficiency. The majority of income you receive from Canadian REITs is fully taxable. It's not eligible for the dividend tax credit. And of course, any income you receive from U.S. or international REITs is not only fully taxable as foreign income, but is also subject to foreign withholding taxes. So now those juicy 4% or 5% yields don't seem so generous after taxes. 
As an example, if you live in Ontario and have an income between $75,000 and $85,000, dividends from traditional Canadian equity index funds are taxed at less than 9%, while REIT income is taxed at 31%. So if you do hold REITs, at least hold them in an RRSP or a TFSA. And finally, as with so many investing decisions, this one needs to weigh the benefits against the added complexity. Adding another fund to your portfolio just makes it more costly and more complicated to rebalance, and it gives you one more reason to get distracted by the returns of a single asset class rather than focusing your attention on your overall portfolio. So Brandon, I think any extra diversification you get from REITs is likely to be outweighed by all of the additional obstacles that I've just outlined. In the vast majority of cases, it's just not worth adding them to your portfolio. Thanks, Dan. If you got an investing question for Dan, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and he may answer it on an upcoming podcast. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. As always, a big thanks to our producer, Nick Jaworski, and to Hunter McKinnon at Truly Social, to Amanda DL and my colleagues at PWL Capital. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a few moments to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. 